you found the Farcast, the weekly podcast in its sixth season of helping you understand what's going on in Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. It is the 15th day of December. How did all of that year go by so quickly, huh? I mean, wasn't a lot of fun. Wasn't a lot of fun this year for markets or for investors. I'm coming out with my top 10 list for 2023, as I do every year. Uh, Those of you following the 2022 list, come to your own uh, conclusions there, but they're still on the CNBC website. You can still go check them, see how they've done. You know, it's tough when you outperform by underperforming less, by going down less, that's always tough. But it's very important to go down less in a down market, folks. Uh, And I've always been one to err on the side of conservatism. Protect your wealth, and then you can grow your wealth. Uh, You don't protect it. You don't have much to grow. Last year, uh, I'm going to say it this way, 2022, as we look at that price-to-earnings ratio, last year was a tough year for prices on the PE of things. 2023 looks to be a tough year for the E side of the equation, the earnings side. Earnings grew, expanded in 2022. For the grammarians out there, I'll say expanded. I'm not, you're not, the earnings really can't grow. Uh, it's grammatically incorrect, but there goes my, uh, you know, days as an English teacher uh, when little things like that bother me. So earnings expanded, if we will. <laughs> earnings increased. We can do that. Earnings indeed did not grow technically, uh, but they are higher. And next year, uh, if we go into recession, as everybody, including, I believe, God, thinks we're going into recession uh, next year, uh, earnings contract. And earnings contract means that that price side of the equation will not have a happy year either. But driven by earnings is a much bigger deal. And watch where they go. Some are saying we've had a rolling recession, that different industries like the communications sector that's down 30% this year is already gone through its recession. Time will tell. That could be wishful thinking. But indeed, a good deal of that pain is behind us. And uh, you know, market timing Really, I don't believe works. Time in the market is what will make you money. As we, we're going to do a special section today with Kenny Polcari. Of course, Dan Mahaffey is uh, going to join us. We're going to talk to Kenny Polcari on a broader subject today. We're going to talk a little bit about markets, what we see for the year. But then we're going to talk about all this volatility, how it's come to be, why markets are being traded and stocks are being traded the way they are now with all of these computers And is this volatility helping? Do we really have a more efficient market? Joining me now, the famous Jim Labenthal, Serity Partner, CNBC contributor, voice of reason, and the most agreeable guy I disagree with often. Welcome back, Jim. Thank you, Michael. I got to tell you, I'm not feeling agreeable today. We haven't we haven't uh, pre-briefed what we're going to talk about, so that may surprise you. But, but you're I'm... feeling, I mean, even out of the gates, Jim, you're a little petulant today. A little, uh, I mean, uh, oh. slept on the wrong side. Not enough bran in the diet, huh? I'm a little concerned. Well, well, it will pass. It will pass. But I, I feel will buckle my of... seatbelt here and get ready for whatever may come my way. 
and, and I know one area I, I do have a I did bring a bit of a sharp stick uh, to poke you a bit here as we get started this morning. Um, Jim, uh, the Federal Reserve did exactly what they said they were going to do. And then they told us afterwards they're going to keep doing it, which is what they do every damn time so far this year. And yet markets were shocked, you know, gambling in Cap Casablanca. I'm shocked. Um, what did you make of the Fed meeting, of the messaging and of no easing until 2024? Yeah. So I don't know who I'm more irritated at, whether it's the Fed or the markets. Uh, but I think I'm going to go with the markets for not having the ability to see past its own nose. Um, what the Fed is doing is jawboning here, and it's getting old. It's getting tired. Um, we kind of know exactly what they're doing. They're, they're saying, hey, we're not going to let up until we see the whites of inflation's eyes. And you know what? That moment is very fast approaching, but they don't want to telegraph that. Okay. Okay. You know, I, I find the chest thumping from Bullard and Powell and, and all these folks to get, as I said, a little tired. Um, they should be acknowledging that inflation is now rapidly coming down, rapidly. And if you took out the lagged effects of owner equivalent rent, uh, that would be more obvious, but will be obvious in the months to come. I think the markets are irritating me more because uh, like how many times can the markets be fooled by this game? What I think is likely to happen is that the Fed is likely to shift to 25 basis point hikes from here on in. Um, they've raised 425 basis points in nine months. Okay, that's a lot. And the effects are just starting to be felt both on the economy and inflation. But as I said, inflation is now meaningfully coming down. Um, uh, so if you do 25 basis point hikes, that means the next meeting, they announced February 1st, you go to four and a half percent on the Fed funds rate. The meeting after that is March 20th, three months away, they go to four and a half percent. For the Fed to get to this 5.1 percent peak Fed funds rate that they're talking about, you're talking about next summer, okay? This is a Fed that has had very little, if any, predictive power at all, okay? So for any of us, and the markets in particular, to believe that the Fed can predict what's going to happen in June, I say, quite simply, ha. Ha. Well, there we go. Strong words from my friend Jim Labenthal. Uh, just ha to the Federal Reserve there. I think the next one's still going to be 50, Jimmy. Um, and we can we can have a, a dollar on that one. Uh, well, I, think you can, have... you, I, I can be the host for a second. Michael Farr, always follow Farr. Tell us why you think 50 basis points. Unless you already that... did it in the intro and I missed it. Nah, I didn't. Uh, I, I think that they are uh, not going to hit the brakes that fast. I think they're still very concerned about their messaging and their messaging to go to 25 on the next meeting will send a more dovish message than I think they're prepared to do. It's just that simple. Uh, they'll stick with 50. Uh, they might even stick with 50 for two more meetings. Look, they don't know the right number. They're looking for that number to stop inflation without crushing the economy. I don't know that they're going to get this right. I suspect they won't. They rarely do. And um, so now they're trying to figure out a messaging game and how do they keep the market from tearing up and how do they really try and squash demand? Um, they're on a course here. And so I think 50 at this next one, certainly that's just me. And, you know, we can, uh, we can put as a, uh, we, you and I can marinate some ice cubes over this, as Art Cashin says, uh, and um, the, uh, the 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 loser can pay for the uh, for for the uh, uh, marination. Hmm? 
Well, I, I like that idea very much. I will say that there is still, you know, a month and a half before the next Fed meeting, and we're going to get those December inflation figures. That'll probably dictate whether it's 50 or 25. You may well be right, but I think <clears throat> I think you'd have to see a, uh, uh, a a change in the trend in inflation for that to happen. Uh, it doesn't look likely when you look at things like gasoline, not just gasoline, other commodities. Take a look at corn and wheat kind of plummeting, freight costs plummeting. Uh, I need not. Go they're not on. looking at that, Jim. They're not talking about that, right? I mean, they're looking. They're, they're looking at the PCE number, which was a little bit better. They're looking at overall inflation still running at six percent, and they want two percent. And that's what I think they're looking at. They're not looking at the stuff that's rolling over. I like this. We got a little dogfight today, Michael and me. I like this. Okay, Michael, I'll, I'll play. Uh, if you look at headline CPI. Month I'm not saying month. you're wrong. I'm just saying they're not looking at it. Well, they, all right. They should be, okay? And boo on them, shame on them if they're not. Right now, what they're doing is they're chasing the ghost of Arthur Burns, and they're not realizing, folks, Arthur Burns was the, the Fed chair in the early 70s who messed up uh, by easing too soon, taking his foot off the brake pedal too soon. Because he caved to was... political pressure from Richard Nixon. Okay, but that's the ghost that they're chasing. And in doing so, they're creating an entirely new ghost for the generations to come. How to break a perfectly good economy when inflation has nothing to do with demand and everything to do with supply. They think they can't keep these service prices under control. They're concerned about wage inflation. They're still concerned about shelter inflation. Those are two very persistent inflationary numbers. And until they think they get that down, until they see in, uh, employment go higher, and I think the unemployment number has to get above five, five, five and a half percent historically is when wage inflation equals CPI. So wages are going up about the same and they're not a driver of higher outsized inflation. I think they're very concerned about that, which is why Powell was talking about that labor market. I'm just saying, Jim, I don't think that they are going to back off of this fight at all, whether they should or not. And I think Jeremy Siegel is a bit premature still in his calling that the Fed has done too much. They're waiting for the evidence. He might be right, but they're going to wait until they see it, which probably takes them too long, which is going to be at the core of the error that they are likely to make. We know each other well, because you could sense I was about to bring up Siegel, couldn't you? I will grant you that his comments are outsized. OK, he goes a little too far, but there's a concept there that I think he's spot on with which is to say that as, it, as wage, wage growth has lagged inflation this whole cycle, the idea of now crushing the economy and putting the lowly worker out on the street when inflation is high, I shouldn't chuckle at it, but it's so absolutely absurd. I can't help but chuckle. It's not to laugh at, it's deplorable. So they're gonna put people out on the street as a way of, of curing inflation. Um, how about this? You know, average hourly but, earnings. But, but by... no, wait, 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 Jim. They will, right? I mean, they're letting I don't think they will. I don't layoffs. Think they will. You I don't, don't think, think they will? will? Because we're starting yeah. to see layoffs already. And by the way, we're seeing credit card rates now approaching 23% interest on your credit card, folks. I mean, and auto loan uh, costs are going up. So, you know, the consumer that can least afford, the consumer in the worst financial condition is getting dinged. Wealthy people pay off their credit cards. They don't have credit card balances. If you're not a wealthy person, let me tell you right now, my clients don't have $15,000 credit card balances month to month. They pay them off as soon as they get them. They're not paying anybody. 
they're not paying anybody 22% interest. I had a great client for many years named Frank Ewing, a real estate mogul. And his family motto was Ewing's collect rent. Ewing's do not pay rent. I loved it. Uh, I like to say that I, 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 if I could get my kids to do that, you know, if I could get to the forest, collect interest, you know, we don't pay interest. I'd love that if you can afford to do it. But that's how you accumulate wealth. I'm sorry, Jim. Go ahead. Nope. All good. All good. We're on fire today. Um, I'm going to paint a picture for you. Fast forward five weeks, paint. late January, late January. And uh, inflation, you know, prices at the pump are now below three dollars a gallon. That's not inconceivable yes. at all. Okay. No, it's in fact it's predicted. Food prices are coming down, and you can predict that looking at corn, wheat, uh, futures. Uh, you can see that, that that they're coming down. So food produce, prices, fresh produce down. prices had jumped in the last numbers. I mean, they jumped big, so it would be good if they came down. Okay, I'm just what I'm merely stating is the commodities themselves, commodities which are a leading down. indicator, are coming down. So now you've got inflation that people see coming down. Okay. And now we're talking about the Fed is going to raise 50 basis points in your in your theory, which I'm not, I'm not listen, I'm, we're just dancing with this, okay? Uh, Fed's going to raise 50 basis points February 1st and start really putting people out of job as, jobs as inflation comes down. You and I, as intellectuals, would both like to believe that the Fed is politically independent. I think that independence has been chipped away at over the last few years. I think Jay Powell knows it's at risk. I think at the end of the day, he's going to be a political beast and, and not do something stupid like put people on the street when inflation is coming down. Well, I know that he's got to be sensitive about that, but he's already said he keeps messaging uh, a recession is an acceptable consequence. And he says, and he's talking about the tight, light, tight labor market as a problem. Tight labor market is a big problem. He keeps saying that. So I don't Why think- Why at this point, and I don't mean to interrupt rudely, but I mean this- uh, no, you, you interrupted very politely. Go ahead. With a soft tone. Why would yeah. we believe anything he has to say at this point in time? But seriously. Well, I think he's done. I think he's done what he said he's going to do here uh, consistently for the last six months. Folks, you can't see Labenthal's jaw dropped. Did you say six for the months, last six no, months? Wait, he has done what he's done, <laughs> said he's going to do for the last six months. <laughs> okay, sorry. Sorry, I didn't catch the for the last six months. Okay, I'll grant you that. I'll grant okay. you that. All right. I mean, because let's not forget, forget October of 2018 with the, hey, we're a long way from the neutral rate comment. I'm going to laugh at that one. He got his butt kicked by the markets on that. Let's not forget we're not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. Let's not forget it's transitory. I mean, look, he's been given a, a damaged car to drive, if I call monetary policy a car, right? He's had to deal with an ill-conceived trade war four years ago, a pandemic, and now a war in Ukraine. I will grant him he has had a damaged car, but he has not learned how to drive it. He keeps oversteering. He keeps oversteering. At this point, I would like him to learn from prior mistakes. The Fed has always been said to drive the car by staring in the rearview mirror. I find Joe J. Powell no different from any of the others. Do you see the way I stuck with your car analogy there, Laban? Like okay, I'm going to move on to another another one because I, it's it's wonderful to disagree with you because we're talking about the same things, only different outcomes, and this is largely based on opinion with backed by some data, and we'll we'll see. But uh, I, I'm not going to ever tell you, folks, that Jim Labenthal's got an unreasonable position or opinion. 
So I can't imagine that he ever will, and I've never seen him have one. I disagree with him at times, but it's not because he's being unreasonable. It's just my opinion's different. I heard uh, in an investment committee meeting this morning, Jim, from a consultant um, that uh, this 2023, we had a problem with the P of the P-E ratio, and 2023 will be a problem with the E of the P-E ratio, that we this is the year where earnings contract. Do you agree with that? How much do you think earnings contract if we do indeed or don't indeed go into recession? And what do Fred and Ethel do about that as they sit here in December, say, uh, Farr and Labenthal are saying earnings are going to go down in 2023. I don't know what that means. Yeah, quick, quick public service announcement. Uh, Michael and I are disagreeing about projections of the future, which inherently have peril in them. So I, I hope you, our listeners, know that we're both thoughtful, uh, experienced people, and there's just no one who has a perfect crystal ball. We're both animated in what we're discussing because it matters, but neither one of us thinks the other we one is We love what we do, and we're interested in this, and we're passionate about it, and you can hear that. This is not a sideline sort of uh, academic observation for us. And unlike many others who do what we're doing in these discussions, Labenthal and I have our own money invested and we invest professionally for other people. We pull the trigger, we make the decisions, we give the advice, and we've been doing it for over 30 years. Great points. Now to your question. Um, it all well, depends on the lot. Fed. <laughs> it all depends on the Fed, whether we get a recession or not, and that's what happens with earnings. You know, if you get this scenario of February 1st, they raise 25 basis points, March 21st, they raise another 25 basis points, and then they pause and stay there, I think the economy will be fine. I mean, let's not <clears throat> mistake the level of <clears throat> roughly four and a half to five percent for Your boy Siegel says they've already overdone it. You think we're okay with another half a point? I think I think the market will be OK. I think the economy is going to handle it because uh, people don't want to let go of jobs. They don't want to let go of employees. Too hard to find. Okay. Um, that could be part of the problem as well. But again, now if the Fed keeps going past that, let's say they do your 50 on February 1st and they keep jawboning and do another 50. I think then you're really putting the economy into peril in terms of a recession. Right now, it's not inevitable that you get a recession. Now, there's a lot of reasons that I could say that. We could look at the labor market. We could look at ISM services. But, you know, I would just take a look at the most discretionary of spending, which is air travel and Las Vegas. Those two areas of the economy are through the roof. Um, yep. you, you know, L Las Vegas, like you can't move down the street. And this is as convention attendance is starting to recover as well. Um, that's not the sign of an economy going to a recession. Economies going to recession don't have Delta Airlines saying yesterday things look pretty darn good. They they don't. What they have are air, airlines saying, hey, you know what? We've got too much capacity. We're going to go park our unneeded aircraft in the Mojave Desert. They're I'm going to push back. Yet. I'm going to push back. I'm going to push oh. back because I've been hearing the Vegas news and I listened to the Delta CEO. And I'm thinking you're looking at your bookings right now and you're looking at consumers who have been on a revenge spending tear and a revenge travel tear and that consumer is running out of money. Credit card balances are at all time highs. We saw retail sales start to crack here in this re most recent data today. 
And I think the consumer's out of wallet and that you lose that flexibility and Vegas numbers crumble and so do airline numbers, numbers crumble. Those bookings go down. Uh, and I think that can dry up and change. So I think they're early indicators. I think it's rear view mirror strength of, of uh, robust spending and attitude. They run out of wallet. Those numbers stop. And I think that's what happens in a recession. Could Michael, you very well could be right. I mean, not, this is not... As it's much not as inconceivable. So. It's yeah. Well, no. Look, it's certainly not inconceivable <laughs> that these are lagging indicators. Yeah. Um, but let me just make a few counterpoints, and not because and we're out of time, so make them quickly. Yeah, but not because I think you're out to lunch. Number one, we've been talking this same conversation. Maybe not you and me. Maybe me and Weiss or Wapner or whomever. We've been having this conversation for nine months and waiting for air travel and Las Vegas to just fall off a cliff, and right. it's not. Okay, but to your point, well made about credit card debt, two things. One, that extra stimulus money, uh, that three trillion or so that built up two years ago, apparently has only been half spent. With regards to credit card debt, what's happened is we've just gotten back to trend line of where credit card debt was growing before the pandemic. And that's a trend line on a linear scale. You and I both know it should be looked at on a logarithmic scale, and it should be looked at as a percentage of GDP. When you do that, we're below trend on credit card debt level. Savings rate's gone from over 9% to just over 3% consumer savings rate. Still a pretty good rate. That's it's not perilous. Not, it's, it's not awful until you look at it compared to those credit card balances. And indeed, there are savings and money market balances continue to be very high which can continue to fuel spending and purchases. And I think will slow the role of any serious market downturn because there's still cash on the sidelines. I've got a lot of people tell me they're still waiting to buy that big bottom. Buy the big bottom is what they want to do. I'm waiting on it. I, huh? I, I want to get invited back. So I'm going to give you the final word. Oh, not at all. There's no reason. <laughs> Labenthal, hey, you come and take over the show any day you, any day you want. Um, this is a good one today. This is good. Uh, give us a final word for Fred and Ethel who are coming into the year end. What do they do? And we're out of here. Yeah. And you know what I'm going to say? Stick with it, folks. Let's even let's let's say what happens in the bear case that you get a recession. This is not a recession that's caused by overinvestment. This is not really a recession that's caused by too much demand. Supply issues will work their way out. The recession, if it happens, likely to be short and sweet. Think about what the second half of next year is going to look like. I wouldn't want to get out of this market because you think you can time your way back into that. Second half of next year is likely to look a lot better than the first half. Listen to Labenthal from Sarity Partners, CNBC contributor, my very dear friend, Jim, if we don't talk to you, happiest of holidays. To you as well, Michael, and to all our listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be back with, yes, he's back. He's back. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. I say that really quickly because I'm going to slow down now and say the senior political analyst on the forecast, which is the important one. Please stay with us. Thank you for joining us this week on the forecast. Now it's time for political analyst Dan Mahaffey and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. As we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world, joining us now, Dan Mahaffey, who covers Washington and the world uh, for those of us on Wall Street uh, and does it very well now here as our senior political analyst, season six on the Farcast. Welcome back, Dan. 
Thank you, Michael. Good to be talking with you. You were traveling around the world, Dan. Where were yes, you? Yes, actually, at? I was just in Japan. Ah, so okay. Before you get out of here today, we're going to hear about I'm Japan. Hear about that. Yes. Let's, uh, in Washington, Dan, there's a budget deal that's being whispered Correct. about. They need a continuing resolution, or they could shut down the government again. They could shut down the government again. But I'm hearing they're not going to shut down the government again. Or are they? What's going on, Dan? Well, they're not going to shut down the government. We're going to get a deal. The four corners, as they're called, the head appropriators in the House and Senate, Republican and Democrat, have come together. Uh, the deal is uh, not yet known, but we do at least know the defense contours. That would be $858 billion on defense. Uh, the does, anybody disagree with, does anybody disagree with defense? No, that's pretty much aligned with, except for you know the far right, uh, you know Rand Paul and others might make some noise about it. So will some of the far left, but how many billion? Uh, eight hundred fifty-eight billion. Eight, almost a trillion dollars. Eight hundred fifty-eight billion on defense. Got it. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, everybody, all those defense stocks out there should be pretty happy to mm -hmm. hear that number, and they're not arguing right. about it. They're not arguing then, about that. Right, and then the argument had been, what would that be related to the the similar side on the discretionary uh, domestic spending? We kind of expect that to be a, a similar number. Um, you know, they had been about uh, twenty six billion apart on non defense spending, but I think they've they've reached that. Now the question simply becomes timing. Do they get all this stuff done? by the 23rd. And then there are some Republicans who are not happy about this because they wanted to push to next year, let the uh, you know narrow Republican House majority uh, have a, their chance at doing the budget. Um, but look, Senate, some of the more moderate Senate Republicans didn't want that to happen. They wanted the next year to be funded, to take care of this, and we'll have it set till the fall done deal, of 2023. Man. Is it a done deal? As, as done as it can get without, uh, you know, the miraculous or horrible happening. Uh, okay, this is so th that, that's rare that that happens in Washington. And there's a there is a uh, olive branch of peace here as we're coming into the end of the year. Yeah, and I think it's the, you know, the agreement of we, we don't want to be doing this between Christmas and New Year's. They want to get home. Uh, there's some discussion now, even with this majority in Congress, that Kevin McCarthy might not mm -hmm. get the speakership of the House of Representatives. Are you hearing that? Is that a real chance? And if not, Mr. McCarthy, whom? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a question. And I think like Kevin McCarthy right now is going opening up his advent calendar and hoping he finds a vote inside each little uh, cabinet that he pulls open. Look, he's right there on the knife's edge. You know, I got to tell you, my daughter sent me a thing, and uh, it's a, and, and so uh, there are these advent calendar things out there for for the uh, for my non-Christian listeners here who who don't know about these things. The advent calendar lead up, and you open today, and some of them are chocolate, and they have chocolates inside the little doors that you open. And that's what we had as children, and uh, my daughter said. Um, According to my chocolate advent calendar, uh, tomorrow is Christmas. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> supposed to open one up a day, you see. But uh, yeah, yeah, right. no. okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. He, he's no, he's hoping he gets those votes. And look, there's already five pretty conservative Republicans who are saying they aren't uh, going to be uh, going along with that. Uh, so look, he's he's got heartburn. He's trying to keep these votes counted for sure. You know, you get into the we can get in the weeds of some of these rules, but the big one is what's known as the motion to vacate the chair. Uh, it is kind of it is what was used to get uh, Boehner and Paul Ryan. It was sort of a sword that hung over them that the party could kick them out of being speaker. 
question is, what kind of concessions does he have to make? Uh, but he's also trying to use the moderates in the caucus as kind of his bad cop. You know, well, yeah, say, OK. All right. So this is one of these arcane Washington strange arguments for the rest of the world. What happens, Dan? I think he narrowly gets it because I don't see a clear alternative. It's not like last time where Paul Ryan was a clear alternative. The only thing I would say is if if it doesn't look like he's going to get through, your key indicator is to keep an eye on Steve Scalise. Can he hang on to it once he gets it? Uh, that's the million-dollar question. It's going to come down to the first debt ceiling showdown, something like that. Um, and that's why that arcane motion to vacate issue becomes so important. It's once he has it, how much security does he hold? Motion to vacate. Listen to that one little catchphrase. Listen for it in the news, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it here first on the forecast. This sort of disruption in Washington rarely affects stock prices, uh, even in the short term. Uh, certainly not in the long term. Uh, so we'll... Uh, we're going to keep uh, watching this for you and bringing you information about D.C. as best as we're able. In China, in China, Dan, they're loosening COVID restrictions, and yet COVID is surging. Why is Xi Jinping picking now, if they're having a surge, to loosen things up? Uh, well, one, a lot of people will point to the protests, but I, I think ultimately it was the economic hit that China was taking. Uh, we've seen the delay in the economic indicators coming out, but they are not good. You see the spike in youth unemployment, something that did contribute to this. Uh, and then there's long been rumors that, you know, influential CEOs were starting to tell the Chinese government, both Chinese CEOs as well as foreign ones, uh, that if this policy continued, China would no longer be uh, the economic supply chain powerhouse for the world anymore. Uh, look, she has his political priorities, but he understands he can't do any of this without a working economy, even if he does want to change the, the shape of it. So, look, they, they are reopening. We're hearing the stories now of overwhelmed hospitals. Uh, but Beijing has run out of ibuprofen and Tylenol, things like that you hear. Um, but look, they also believe that they can get through this. They're moving out on another vaccination campaign. Um, although, look, the modeling is going to be tough. You you see pro uh, proposals or predictions that say, uh, you know, one million fatalities as they reopen. This is not a uh, an easy thing to be doing because they're still refusing the Western vaccines and uh, and medicines. Okay. Well. We'll continue to watch, but I don't think that Xi Jinping is anywhere near changing his stripes. Pay attention to his long-term message, which <laughs> continues uh, to prioritize a societal goal over economic consequence. Certainly, don't certainly, and and that, and and no, yeah, and note too that he's keeping his hands off a lot of this decision to reopen, such that he can can blame it on local authorities or underlings. So he's using plausible the authority deniability. There. There's a new one. Plausible yeah, deniability. Exactly. Which is yeah. interesting. He feels he has to do that when he's basically king for life over there. I mean, uh, it's 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 weird. I, I don't quite mm -hmm. understand why he would be concerned about that. Why is he concerned about that? Well, I think it's just the the put the blowback if you do have the scenes of overwhelmed hospitals, the questions about uh, fatalities, you know, why vaccines and other things aren't being imported. Uh, the, as much as he wants to avoid it, the buck will still stop with him. 
you know, that said, the, the final thing that I think is of concern when I talk to people who track epidemiology and virology is uh, simply what, what kind of new variants might we get from this massive uh, uncorking of a population all at once. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, all right. Russia, uh, anything changing there? We heard this week uh, that Vladimir Putin is actually ill. Have you been hearing that? I mean, that there's a real issue with his health. There's plenty of rumors about his health. I think what what I would say is more uh, of concern is there's still no clear vision of who would come post-Putin, and most of them are kind of scarier characters than he is in many ways. So it's not... Uh, uh, you know, if anything, you don't want to say you, you don't want that to to uh, fall apart rapidly, as it were. Uh, but at least the, what you've seen on the front is it's now becoming a war of attrition. And I think the key thing will be how quickly can we get more uh, hardware, more uh, artillery munitions, more anti-aircraft munitions uh, into Ukraine. Uh, and frankly, just it's a matter of production, how quickly the West can produce it and get it there. Um, and how long are we willing to keep, uh, you know, putting this, uh, writing these checks to to do this, too? Uh, there's a certain amount of impatience on the checks, but what we're hearing from the administration is they've got more checks uh, and uh, more anti-missile, anti-aircraft, anti-this sort of thing and weapons. Yeah, and, and I think despite, yeah, and despite what a few will say, this, this even this new Congress is still going to be pretty solidly supporting uh, Ukraine. Yep. Okay. Very cool. Thank you. Now, uh, finally, we've been in our last two minutes here. Japan, tell us what you saw. Tell us about the economy. Tell us what you learned. It's so helpful, ladies and gentlemen, to take these trips and to go firsthand feet on the ground. Tell us what you saw, Dan. Yeah, look, in Japan, you see one, a country, I think, still getting into the reopening phase from COVID. They have just reopened to tourists just several months ago. I was there on business travel, uh, but still it depressed demand uh, and, and one where they are not quite fully back yet like we are. Um, but I would say, though, look, they're moving ahead, investing in their semiconductor industries. They're concerned, uh, perhaps the same as we are, if not more, about the security of supply chains. Uh, and then they're secure. They're worried about their own security. I met with officials, and this, I think, gets into defense production and other things. They have uh, increased their defense budget by 56% over the next five years. That's nearly, uh, it's more than doubling it, and they're going to get to 2% of GDP for their defense spending. Uh, so it's almost a model, we want to say, for when we talk about burden sharing with allies. Uh, they're concerned about what they're seeing with China and North Korea, uh, and they're arming themselves to respond. Okay. Uh, are you are you encouraged then uh, by what you saw with the Japanese economy there? It has been stalled for decades. Look, I think there's still some deep underlying challenges of demography and innovation they have to look at, but that we've reached a point where Japan is actually now uh, an attractive, in my in my mind, investment opportunity because of one, how they're moving on some of these technologies, but also uh, you look at these these great uh, Japanese companies, trading houses, they do most of their business outside of Japan now. Um, very little of their revenue comes from within Japan. So there's a question, one, of when you see that investment come back into Japan, both from their companies as well as outside, uh, what are we going to see? And what are we going to see, too, where they're moving, uh, again, robotics, 
electromagnetic uh, uh, warfare type stuff. There's advanced stuff they're working on um, as well that we are we can partner with them. When does Congress finally go on uh, holiday break and can the rest of us exhale? <laughs> I think they're going to try and get this all wrapped by the 23rd. By the 23rd. There we go. So that's pretty tight on Christmas. 23rd is Maggie Farr's birthday. That's a big day in our house. It's a big day to celebrate my Maggie. I'm looking forward to that as I do every year. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, the senior political analyst on the Farcast. Thank you, Dan. Take care. We will be right back with Kenny Polcari. Yes, in segment three, Kenny Polcari, we're going to talk about the volatility in the markets and these algorithms and computer trading things that drove futures up over 900 points on the Dow Jones Industrial Average Tuesday after a one-tenth of a percent change in the CPI number. Really? 900 points over a one-tenth in less than a minute. 900 points in less than a minute. How does that happen? How damaging is that to investors? We're going to ask Kenny coming up next. Please stay with us. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. We appreciate you listening into the podcast this week. And now to introduce this week's special guest, here's your host, Michael Farr. Kenny Polcari is CEO of Case Capital Advisors, was a longtime CNBC contributor, was the voice of the New York Stock Exchange. You can now see him all over Fox morning, noon and night. God, do they love him on Fox. Welcome back, Kenny. Thank you, Michael. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And Merry Christmas as we get closer to the holidays. Merry Christmas as we get closer to the holidays. We've got another forecast coming before and after the Christmas holiday. Happy Hanukkah, happy at whatever it is that you celebrate during this holiday season. Um, Kenny, uh, Jay Powell and the Fed yesterday said exactly what we expected them to say. Half a point, they broadcast it, and then they continued their hawkish talk saying, we're going to keep raising rates until we whip inflation. And markets were shocked, shocked. Gambling in Casablanca, shocking. <laughs> it's unbelievable, isn't it? Because it's unbelievable. He, right. Why do we in keep my, doing this? In my note today, I said he actually showed that he had a backbone, right? He didn't cave. He didn't turn dovish. Although, you know, and I said this in my note as well. People hear what they want to hear versus what he's saying just because they want to hear something different. And Bloomberg ran with two articles. One article was very hawkish saying, no, 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 he said we're doing this and we're not changing. And then the other article said, well, maybe he indicated that he softened. Where did he indicate that? He never indicated that. He never in fact, indicated it. 
In fact, he he was very emphatic when he said, we're not close. Rates will continue to go up. It's going to be restrictive. The labor market is extremely tight. I mean, he used all these adverbs to make it very clear. He could have said the labor market's tight, but no, he said the labor market is extremely tight. He made it very clear that he's concerned. So I didn't hear Dove at all yesterday, which I think is the right thing to do. I don't think he should be dovish at all. I think he needs the his 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 goal should be to tamp inflation. And the only way he's going to do that at this point is now to get is to remain aggressive. You remember when we used to look at Alan Greenspan's briefcase? Yeah. When yeah. he would go in on Fed Day meetings. Right. There, it was were, either thick there or were thin. hours of reports on the yeah. size of Alan Greenspan's briefcase, because if it was large and overstuffed, there was going to be a rate hike. And right. if it was any briefcase, they weren't yeah. going to do anything. Right. And you, But you also remember how he would come out and he'd make the announcement and he'd turn around and go away. He didn't sit there and hold your hand and do a press conference and take questions and say, yeah, take a Xanax and lie down on the couch and let's talk about it. No. He just said, here's what we're doing. You guys figure it out. And he walked away. Market that? stability was never on the Fred's, Fed's agenda. Uh, exactly they didn't right. give a damn about the market. And they tell Ex you, stock market has to go where the stock market's going to go. Our job is price stability and full employment. Exactly right. Until that changed during the crisis when suddenly everyone thought they needed to come out and hold everyone's hand and tell everyone exactly what they're going to do and give them, you know, months worth of lead time so they could prepare themselves. And even though they do that, it's still chaotic because he says it, he says it, he says it. And then traders and markets and speculators go, oh, no, no, he doesn't really mean that. He's not going to do that. He gets impossible. What do you mean? What are you talking about? I have a very sophisticated friend uh, who says the Fed actually has three mandates yeah. uh, in, 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 in this order. Uh, <laughs> number one, preservation of the power of the Fed. Right. Number, number two, full employment. Number three, price stability. Right. Uh, and they're caving on the full employment thing now. It depends how you define that full employment, right? It depends. And this is always the economist's answer. But remember what Farr has been telling you for months. Until unemployment gets to five and a half percent, you're going to have greater wage inflation than you do price inflation. Mm -hmm. It's at about five and a half percent where wage inflation equals CPI. That's right. where they've got to get so that wage inflation is no longer a driver. Now, maybe wage inflation can stay a little hot if something else really cools. Right. Because so, you know, there are more than one factor in there. But wage inflation is huge. And we need to see shelter cost inflation, rents and home costs. We've seen some home values, but rent costs are still on the rise, folks. They're rising more slowly. That's a good thing. But that rents are still going up. So when you get wages and rents, those are two huge factors in the inflation data. So, Kenny, what do you make of all of this? He said we're going to don't look for any kind of a rate cut until 2024. Does that mean January 2024 well, we can have well, a rate cut? That's That was exactly my question in my note this morning, because all he said was 2024. So is it January? Is it June? Is it December? Because that's going to make a difference to all those people that are trying to play that guessing game, right? What's he really mean by that? When is it going to happen, right? Is it 12 yeah. months out? Is it 24 months out? Because that's going to make a difference to you know how the market will react, how you should allocate your portfolio. It doesn't mean you should run out the door and sell everything. It just means you need to understand kind of the landscape. But I think it's way too early for him to define what that meant. But yeah. I think he was very clear saying, listen, all you people that think it's coming in 2023, you better rethink that idea because it's not happening. That's like the, the Trump 2024 campaign, not happening, right? 
Well, uh, Trump has already announced. What do you mean? It's not. It is happening. He, he's he's okay. running. There's no, no. He, yes, yes. But it's not happening. He's got. It's going to fail. It's going to be like Hillary exhaustion. It's going to be Trump exhaustion by the time we get to it. So yes, he's running, but it's not happening, right? He's not going to be the candidate. He's not going to be the president. So just push that aside and move on. He doesn't win the party's uh, nomination. You Absolutely think? not. It's close. Now, he, the political people tell me that it's close it, still. It's but 24 crazy. months away. Think about so, what can happen in 24 months. If he did it today, if he did it today, they're telling but, me he'd get the but, nomination. Okay, but it's not today. Let's just say it's not today. The The field hasn't been populated yet, right? We know certainly DeSantis is going to be one name, but think about all the other names that could show up. So in my mind, I pay no attention to what they say. Oh, if it was today, I don't care. It's not today. So stop saying that because it's not today. I like that. I think it's a very good point. But I, I, I also look, Kenny, people keep saying, you know, they want to lull themselves into the self, a sense of comfort, their comfortable space. And, yep. you know, they, they get used to the idea, well, Trump can't do it. And therefore, I don't have to worry about Trump anymore. I just want to kind of nag people and say, ah, don't you underestimate this guy. People didn't think he beat Hillary at all, well, at all. And 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 you underestimate Donald Trump at your own peril. I'm just telling you, okay. 24 months to Kenny's points a long time. And his base might love him again. Well, or or listen, in 20, when he ran against Hillary, things were different, right? The economy was different. We were in a different place. So much has happened since he's been and then hasn't been president. I think that's going to that, that's going to wake a lot of people up, which is why I'm not getting concerned about it. I don't jump into those conversations. I, first of all, it's way too early. And I think it's I think it's ridiculous. I think there's so many other candidates besides the fact I hate to say this because you and I are getting to that point. I don't think the country wants an 80 year old president anymore. I just don't think they want that generation. I, look, I've said it for I've said this for years. We have to address this issue and we have to address it in the Constitution. We're very comfortable as a society. This is we have age discrimination, folks. Wanna know where? You can't get a driver's permit till you're 16 years old. Okay. Right. Right. You can't vote till you're 18. You can't and if you're a doctor, until you're 21. If you're a doctor, you have to retire at 70. You can't you can't practice past 70 in a in a you can do it on your own, but you can't do it in one of those managed groups. They my 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 uh, my internist turned 70. He's out. You can't be on a corporate board after the age of 75 in this country. Why? Right. Because they think your odds of losing it. All right. Do you know that a recent survey said that uh, average Americans believe that you're elderly when you're 83 years old. That was the consensus age okay. when you're elderly in this country. Life expectancy 79, for God's sake. So four after your four years after you're dead, the U.S. Yeah. thinks you're elderly. Listen, Diane Feinstein is still a California senator, and she's got this dementia, and she's still a senator. Is it? Uh -huh. And I'm not listen. And I feel I, I'm not wishing ill on her, but what I'm saying is. What's the matter with this picture? It's not doing California any good, and it's not doing the Senate any good. Um, Am I right or wrong? And I'm not, listen, I'm 61. Pretty soon I'm going to be 70, then I'm going to be 80, and they're going to throw me out. I get it. It's the way it works. The opinions expressed by the guests of the Farcast <laughs> are not those of the Farcast, the host, Far Miller in Washington, or Hightower Advisors. <laughs> we, we appreciate your thoughts and opinions, Kenny. Uh, at, and we're going to let you go in front of the firing squad today. I'm stepping aside <laughs> on that one, brother. I'll hand you a cigarette. Um, okay, Kenny, what we saw, what we saw uh, the, the other morning, uh, Tuesday morning, on the release of that CPI data was something that I have never seen before. 
futures up over 900 points under a minute. Polkari, right. it was under 60 right. seconds, but it was up 900 points on the 937 points on the Dow in less than a minute. I, I hear you. How was that? It's it's lunacy, right? That is a direct result of the automation that we have in the market today and the algos. They they let the algos run. Now here's the here's what people need to understand is that and I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not making a judgment about it. It's the transition and it's kind of progress, right? The New York Stock Exchange and the way we trade stocks is not the way we used to trade stocks. The people are all gone. It's run by technology and it's run by computers. And now not only do we not trade an eighth of a dollar when there were seven price points between every full figure, which helped to control the market. Now do you realize that there are a thousand price points between 20 and $21 that anyone can trade at, which makes it which creates chaos, but creates momentum for the algorithms, right? So you can trade at 20 spot 0001 all the way up to 9999. That's a thousand price points between every full figure. And that's what creates all this all this chaos. So now what happened on, on the other day when the market's up 900 points, the that, that headline came out, right? The CPI headline came out. They get everybody crazy. Remember that JP Morgan came out that morning and said, well, if it's, if it's this number, the market's going to rally four and a half percent in one day. I'm like scratching my head going, are you kidding me? Why? Why? What, exactly. Yeah, I know why? I saw the headline and I'm sitting there going, why, why does it go up four and a half percent if it's one tenth of a point? This is stupid. Of course it's stupid. But what happens is what what now you have to understand is are these things called smart logic algorithms. And what they do is you don't talk to them because they can't talk. Right. But they scrape the headline. So they look for the words. They look for the they, is it a positive word is it a negative word. Right. And so there was all this positive commentary on uh, on Wednesday morning, like what was going to happen if and the markets were due to a bounce. And oh, my God, they're going to go higher and everything's OK. And inflation, you know, the, the Fed is successful. Inflation is going lower. And so the algos got all charged up. And when the number came out, which, by the way, yes, top line number was actually better than expected. But if you looked under the sheets, guess what? Wages continue to go up. Food prices continue to go up. What came down? Used car prices. That's great. Can you eat a used car? No. Can you live in a used car? Maybe. But everything else keeps going up. Even though the top line number came down, the, 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 the internals are actually worse. Yet, the algos didn't focus on that. They focused only on the top line. They focused on, oh, my God, look at this. The Fed is successful. And boom. Now. The buy orders come in, but at the same time, the algorithms automatically canceled sell-side interest. So there's a void in prices, which then causes the market to go up 900 points because the buyers have to buy something. So where do they go? They go to where the first offer is, right? That's where they go. And that's why you start up 900 points, which is complete ridiculousness. And then you saw what happened. It actually sold off, went negative. It went negative. It went negative on the Dow Industrial and the Dow Transports. The S&P, the Russell, and the NASDAQ traded right down to the flat line. Yep. And then they turned up a little bit. But yep. by the end of the day, it's the automation that we've created. We've created it. Uh, that's created the chaos. And now, look, they actually want to they want to go out six decimal places. So they want to create 10,000 price points between 20 and 21 dollars. Why? Because it's better for the algorithms. It's OK, I'm going to push back. I'm going to push back a little bit. I'm going to push yep. back a little bit. I hate these algos, by the way. Yep. I hate these things, but I'm going to push back. Back in when, when Kenny and I and God himself were young. <laughs> And 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 we when we were trading in this business, you would typically see spreads on a larger stock of maybe an eighth of a point, a larger stock. Twelve and a half cents. Yeah, it would be right. an eighth of a point, twelve and a half cents. So you'd see AT&T, I'd call Kenny or I'd yell across to him. I'd say, Kenny, where's it? Where's telephone? He'd go 30 by an eight. Right. That was it. Right. Right. 
and 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 thirty by an eighth meant it was thirty bid and thirty and an eighth offered. That right. was it, and that was right. the spread. Well, if you were trading, if you were trading as we would at times, tens of thousands of shares, uh, and you could get into that spread, there's twelve and a half cents that you can make somewhere in there. Uh, in the spread, there's a commission. There's there are positions you can take on the Nasdaq. You could charge an eighth of a point or a quarter of a point in a commission okay, and make it a net trade there. Okay, hold that thought for a minute because that's true on the Nasdaq. That was absolutely true on the Nasdaq at the New York Stock Exchange because it was an exchange where buyer met seller. That was the case. Nasdaq, you had to trade with the market maker, so I had to buy it from the market maker. I right. had to sell it to the market maker. Right. You and I could not trade directly on Nasdaq. On the New no. York Stock Exchange, we tried to, without the specialists, you and I tried to come together and meet at a price. It was yes. when there was an imbalance, either to, there was more to buy or there was more to sell, that the specialists would step in to try to, to, try to uh, balance out the imbalance, right? Right. But right. on NASDAQ, you the, the market maker was a built-in process. You had to buy. So if you bought it at eight, if you bought it at eight from him, he bought it at, a, at, at the full figure from the seller, right? The buyer and seller never came together. So he we, had real, we had real commissions. Correct. You know, minimum commission on a ticket when I started in the business with $35. If you wanted to buy 100 shares of a $20 stock, yeah. uh, it was still $35. And yeah. there were plenty of people who did that. And yeah. then if you wanted to buy a couple of 300 shares of McDonald's, oh, I could make a $150, $200 commission on that trade. Right. Uh, so there were real commissions. And for stockbrokers, they would, they, your firm expected you to do at least 1% on your book. If you had a, if you had a hundred million dollar book, they wanted to see a million dollars a year in gross commissions out of you. Otherwise you weren't trading it enough. Well, this is not an inside secret. This is a consistent rule across Merrill Lynch, every firm on the street, uh, all during the 80s and most all of the 90s. This is zero. So, Kenny, my point, now you can see where I'm going. Yeah. Right now, with, you know, uh, a thousand points, price points between 20 and 21. Yeah. Uh, the commission and there are no commissions through Fidelity and, and Schwab or any of these other things. So. Therefore, is the consumer being damaged? Is the customer being damaged by any of this? Okay, so I say yes. And by the way, the latest news coming out of the SEC is Gary Gensel is looking to do away with a lot of the current market structure, right? Payment for order flow, which is why Fidelity can do it for zero or TD can do it for zero because they're selling your order flow to Virtue, Citadel and all the other wholesalers. That's number one, right? Number yes. two, is the natural buyer meeting natural seller in the crowd today? Most likely not. There, once again, it's like the Nasdaq. The, the natural buyer is trading with a wholesaler. Wait, when the they sell my order, when they sell my order for a yep. hundred thousand shares from yep. Carmel in Washington, we trade a hundred thousand shares or something. Yeah, they sell it to that. They they they, they sell it to that uh, wholesaler. The what wholesaler. do they get? What, what what does it mean? I mean, I get an execution that's still right uh, uh, with it. I'm seeing on my screen within a penny. Within a penny, but but think about that. Think about how much how much room there is in between that penny, right? Between one cents and two cents, there's there's room because we trade in sub decimals in the. But that doesn't hurt my customers at all. That doesn't hurt the end investor. I mean, that's not the two hundred dollars a trade they were getting charged twenty years ago. Agreed, and so that's the argument they'll make that they need that little bit of room because that's how they keep the system going. And in the long and in the end, if you have a long term investor, whether he pays. $20 spot one, two, three, four, or $20 spot two, three, five, six, 
If he's holding it for five or six years, he's going to sell it at 60 spot, seven, eight, nine, ten. What do they care? They don't really care. And that's the argument that they make. But that's what greases the skids and keeps those wholesalers going because they can jump in between in the sub penny environment and scoop pennies, sub pennies off of every trade. I'm and it's a lot of money, over, by the way. I'm getting way over time here, but there was a study uh, from MFS years ago that I loved. Uh, and they showed they studied a full load, 3% load fund versus a similar no load fund. Now, yep. this is going to be shocking. And what they found was that the five-year returns for the no-load fund were net-net higher than the fund that paid 3% to buy. Right. Duh. Right. <laughs> but here's the, here's the amazing part. The amazing part is that the returns to the shareholders, fund shareholders who paid the 3% load, right. they made more money. They made more money than the no-load people. Why? Because they didn't sell the fund after they paid the 3%. Right. People who were in the no load sold out. But when things at the worst points, they listened to their emotion and those fees kept people involved. Very, right. you wouldn't think it makes sense now to hear it, but I right. thought it was a great argument. How do you make money in the stock market? You just stay invested, you, folks. You, you stay invested. Listen, and in my note today, I said Warren Buffett is the perfect example. Right. He's not a day trader. He's a long term investor. He buys when stocks are weak. He takes advantage of the weakness and he and he builds generational, in his case, lots of generational wealth, right? But that's what he's done. You know, uh, one of my favorite Buffett lines is uh, the stock market is a mechanism to transfer money from the impatient to the patient. Right. Correct. That's And, and it's absolutely, I promise, true. Um, Kenny, should our listeners be concerned about the way business is being done on the algos? And I got to go. I mean, no. 10 minutes ago, I got to go. No, no. Listen, again, they sh if you're a long-term investor, you shouldn't be. You should have your plan. Talking to people like you, talking to people like me, putting the plan together and then sticking to that plan. They shouldn't be. But what they need to do is they need to ignore the noise because all that algorithm stuff, all that chaos, it creates noise, right? Now, if you're a day trader, it's great. You love that noise. You actually profit on that noise or not, maybe if you're on the wrong side. But as a long-term trader, as long as you got your plan and you're sticking to it and you're talking to your advisor, forget the noise, forget the daily interruptions, forget the, you know, the chaos it creates and just stick to the plan. Now, when the story changes fundamentally on the economy or on that particular stock, that's a different conversation. But for the most part, absolutely not. Right. I mean, basically, if you think that the U.S. economy on average is going to continue to expand over the next 10 years, then you yep. buy stocks. Correct. It's very simple. Correct. You buy stocks it, and you own a piece of America's expansion over time. And listen, don't get cute. No, no. Cute costs money. Yeah, yeah. But listen, it's not difficult, but don't tell anybody that because otherwise you're putting you and me out of business. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the process is not that difficult. It's fighting the emotion. That's... That have, they absolutely can't do it. And, and they get scared and they get a brother-in-law who tells them how much money he just made in Bitcoin and they're right. stupid not owning Bitcoin, right? buy Bitcoin, and then we know what happens. All right. right. Kenny Polcari, President, CEO, Case Capital Advisors, my very dear friend for a whole hell of a lot of years. Thank you, Kenny. Michael, I love you. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Love you. Happy Christmas. Merry New Year. And that's <laughs> it for another forecast this week. Uh, we will be back next week as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. From Naples, Florida, I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for listening. Share us on social media. 
I'll see you next week. Bye. And that's a wrap for another edition of the Farcast. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show as much as we enjoy making it for you every week. Thanks to this week's guest, Jim Labenthal, Dan Mahaffey, and Kenny Polcari. Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all major podcast platforms. We love hearing from you every week, and you can reach us at hjennings at farmmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of Hightower Advisors or Bar Miller in Washington, are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors, Bar Miller in Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help, and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Join us next week as our scheduled special guest will be Tony Dwyer from Canaccord Genuity. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained for the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Bar Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor or related questions.